Today's scripture reading is found in Luke chapter 16, verses 13 through 14 and 19 through 31. Take a moment to turn to the text in your Bible to follow along. The reading will also be on the screen behind me. No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. The Pharisees, who are lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. And he said to them, verse 19, There is a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things, but now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. You can be seated. Again, if you're new, I want to especially welcome you. This is what we do here at the Parks Church. We preach through the scriptures, so I want to encourage you to keep your uh, Bibles open as we'll walk through this. Uh, we're, we're in a series uh, on uh, Jesus' parables. We're taking selected parables um, during this series. We actually have three more. After this week, we'll have three more parables uh, before we get into uh, our Advent season and Advent teaching as well. And one of the things we've been doing, which has been so fun over the last several weeks, is engaging the artist community within our faith family. And so they have provided different paintings and different mediums of art to essentially kind of expand our imagination on what Jesus is teaching in, in and through these parables. It's one of the things we believe about the parables and the way Jesus taught them, and, and it was one of his primary teaching mechanisms, is that he was trying to ignite the imagination of his hearers to actually understand what the kingdom of God was like. And so that's why we call it the portraits of the kingdom. And so uh, this week we have another artist, and this one's by Macy Lux. So one of our, our kids, Macy's right here on the front row. Like, right, this is a full community. It's not just uh, adults, right? It's also kids, and we'll have a student who will uh, do an art piece as well. But so thankful for Macy doing this art piece um, as well, and, and she titled this Life With and Without. 
And probably even by the scripture reading, you, could, you can hear where, where this artist, Macy, uh, sat with the text and, and, and painted and put on canvas um, something to illustrate uh, what was going on in this, this parable. And so, um, yeah, keep your Bibles open. Let's, let's walk through it. Uh, but I want to start here. I, I grew up in a church culture uh, that wasn't scared to talk about heaven and hell. Uh, it just was not, and uh, there's, there's probably a lot more I can say about that. Uh, they, they would do productions called Heaven's Gates and Hell's Flames, right? And uh, uh, the things that depicted hell, you would assume would be there in those, and in heaven, you know, angels and a lot of light, and anyway. Um, now, at this point, you probably think that I'm going to say something negative about that. Uh, while I maybe could, I'm not going to. Because as I've thought about that, one of the things I found is my heart is actually really appreciative of it. That there was a, an awareness at a very early age in me of the reality of those two places that our Bible talks about. A place known as heaven and a place known as hell. And now there are theologies around both of those, biblical theologies around both of those that I will not unpack this morning, nor do I think that the parable actually unpacks those for us, but I will talk about them. And when I use the word heaven, I want you to think of the place where um, the righteous go, those who have faith and trust in, in, in Jesus and through Jesus are with God. Right? And then hell, when, I, when you hear hell, I want you to think about um, on the other side of that chasm, and that's language from our parable, that there is a place for the unrighteous, those who choose not to believe and put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Those two places are very real. Those two realms are very real. And I think in, in, in modern church culture, in, in the circles maybe we're more in, uh, those two things, particularly the latter hell, doesn't get... A, a lot of play. And so um, I will talk about that as faithfully as I can from the parable. But like I said last week, parables don't build whole theologies. They are theological, but they do not build whole theologies. So if you're looking for a theology around what hell is like or what it contains, this is not the parable that's going to do that, or heaven as well, all right? But there is some some talk about it. But the the, the main thrust, and, and honestly, if I've, and, and, and we'll get there in a second, I was utterly surprised by what I think the actual main point of this parable is. And I'm going to share what that is near the end, okay? But just a surface reading, and this honestly didn't surprise me until about Wednesday or Thursday of this week in my study time. Because as I set this up, as I do every parable in my study, um, I begin to look at the context. The context of, of this chapter in Luke, and, and, and again, have your Bible open, verses 13 and 14 tell us the context and the audience to which Jesus tells this parable. And so let's, let's look at it. Jesus says in verse 13, no one can serve two masters. So outside of one verse, which is verse 18, really the, the entire chapter of Luke chapter 16 is about money or the, the stewardship of money or resources. And here in verse 13, Jesus goes, no one can serve two masters. You're going to hate one and serve the other. You're going to uh, 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 love one and despise the other, right? That is just the reality of the human heart, Jesus is saying. And so then to drill down even further, verse 14 gives us the audience to which Jesus is speaking particularly. He says, the Pharisees who were lovers of money, he just let the cat out of the bag there, right? Heard all these things and they ridiculed him. They heard these teachings. They heard all that Jesus said. They just heard Jesus say, you can't, your heart cannot be divided between two masters. You will love one and hate the other. You'll serve one and despise the other. 
And they ridiculed him. Why? Because they loved money. Mammon, some translations use uh, that, that word, which we've actually preached on before. And then Jesus goes from that context and in that audience to tell them a story beginning in verse 19, a parable. And that story gives us two people in the parable. And again, remember his audience being the Pharisees and being the crowd and his disciples who are hearing this. These two people tell us a lot about what Jesus is trying to communicate. The first character in what I call part one of the parable is a rich man. Now, this guy was not just rich. He was what we call filthy rich. And Jesus is painting that picture very clearly by going, listen, this man wore purple. You're like, purple? And he took it even a step further. He said it wasn't just purple clothing. It was purple linen. So in this day, in this century, purple was a, was, was a dye. Obviously, your clothes had to be dyed to get it that color. To get that kind of dye, you had to have a lot of money to be able to dye your clothing purple. It, it, it rep, would represent royalty. Royalty would wear purple. And linen, linen was a, was a very expensive cloth. So this guy is walking around with purple linen on to what? To display his wealth. And if you look at the language here that Jesus is using in the original Greek, it is meant to this idea of the clothing, the color and the type of clothing was meant to radiate, communicate his wealth. That's what verses nine, verse 19 tells us. And it's not just his clothing that advertises his wealth, is it? Look at what Jesus says in, in this story in verse, the end of verse 19. And he feasted sumptuously every day. Jesus wasn't just like he had enough food, he, was, you know, he ate well. He uses the word sumptuously, like to emphasize this guy is wearing the finest of fine clothing and this guy is eating the finest of fine food every single day. This guy's wealth is off the charts. And maybe his original audience is like, wow. Maybe somebody particular comes to mind, but in the story they for sure are thinking, man, this is, this is interesting. Now I want to pause here. Because you know where this story goes. I want to emphasize that the man's wealth is not the issue. That is not the issue that Jesus is trying to point out. It was this man's trust and love of his riches which are the issue. That his personal security, his hope, his identity, him trying to radiate his wealth, that was the issue. All of this was tied back to what this man had evidenced by his desire for everyone to know it. What comes to my mind is Proverbs eleven twenty eight that says, whoever trusts in his riches will fall, but the righteous will flourish like a green leaf. Now, I do want to pause here and understand that we are in Collin County in McKinney, Texas, one of the most affluent counties in all of the state of Texas. We live in the United States of America, one of the wealthiest nations in all of the world in any world's history right before. All of us in this room, by worldly standards, are wealthy. That Jesus, when he talks about money or he uses the word mammon, he is not talking about that directly, but he always talks about the love and the drive that comes from money. That money in of itself, wealth in of itself is not evil. It's the love, it's the desire, it's the security. As, as Paul would say to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6, it's the cravings for money. That's where we need to be warned. And speaking of 1 Timothy chapter 6, uh, put this one up. He says, as for the rich in this present age, notice he doesn't condemn them next. He warns them. 
He doesn't say, stop being rich. Give away your wealth. He doesn't say anything like that. What does he say? Charge them not to be haughty, right? Not to link back your value, your, your pride back to your money. He says, nor set your hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. And so again, the word of God, the way it talks about money in this parable is going to highlight as well is that money is not evil. What is evil is the things that inevitably or, or can flow out of a craving for more. A heart that, that is set on riches, a heart that, that, that puts security in wealth or, or identity in riches. The Bible, page after page, condemns self-sufficiency as the antithetical thing to saving faith. And money has a way, wealth has a way of us pointing back our, self, our sufficiency back to self. And so this man is, is portrayed there. And again, for his original audience, they could have potentially looked at the rich man and go, man, that guy is blessed by God. God's blessing is on that man. Is it? Well, we'll find out. And the second person in part one, his name is Lazarus. Now, what's interesting about Lazarus in this parable particularly, this Lazarus is not the one Jesus raised from the dead. This is a fictitious story, and this is a fictitious man that Jesus has made up. Okay, it's the only parable that Jesus gives a name to one of the characters. And I'll tell you why I think that's important here in just a second. But but Lazarus is described as this poor man laid at this wealthy man's gate. Now, I think Jesus includes that he's laid at the gate of this wealthy man again to highlight how wealthy this guy is, that he has a gate that a poor guy is laid in front of. Now, that's not uncommon for this audience. They'd have been like, that's, that's where poor people find themselves. People carry poor people or lame people to a, a gate of a wealthy person so that in their wealth, they might be generous to this poor person or care for this uh, poor person. So Lazarus, we're told, is laid at this rich man's gate, the same gate, if you will, every day. So much so that in the parable, you, you know that the rich man knows Lazarus' name. So he knows him. He's not unaware of him. He's not like, who's been out at my gate? He passes him every day. What's up, Lazarus? And Lazarus is out there, poor, wounded, sores everywhere. And now again, Jesus and his original audience, they might hear the sores or the, 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 the physical pain that Lazarus was in and go, I wonder if this is a consequence given to him by God. I wonder if God is condemning him in some way. In Jesus' story, I love Jesus as a storyteller. He talks about these dogs coming and licking his wounds. How we're just supposed to feel like, that's gross. And these aren't like man's best friend, like dogs you had. This is not a chihuahua, right? Like think, this is like a hyena, a wild dog trying to feast on Lazarus. And what would, what would give Lazarus enough substance to, to stand up? It says the crumbs from this man, rich man's table if he could just have the crumbs from his table. Now, what's interesting about crumbs, most scholars believe that these weren't just like, you know, as they're feasting, just crumbs flying everywhere. These were pieces of bread that they would wipe or wash their hands off with because they were feasting so extravagantly. They were like napkins that they would just throw down, that dogs would eat, literally. And Jesus is going, if Lazarus could just have those, but he couldn't. He wasn't even given that. And every day, this rich man steps over Lazarus. Hey, man, 
and goes on his way. Very reminiscent of another, another parable. Another parable we've taught here, right? The Good Samaritan. You see, these two are meant to hold us in suspense as they were for his audience. How are you going to think about these men? How are you going to think about the rich man? Are you going to think, wow, he is so blessed. Purple, linen, a gate. Whoa. He must be living right. Lazarus. What did he do to get there? What addiction does he have? Listen, don't, don't think this isn't like the exercise we have in our current mindset. This is exactly the same mindset many of us have as we view wealth and we view poverty. We see the wealthy, we see those with, uh, with, with means, we go, man, they must be a really good steward of their money. We think, oh, we, we need to learn from them, right? We put it on a pedestal. Whether you say it or not, you begin to think like that. And then with those who are in poverty, or those hurting, those in pain, you're like, hmm, wonder what the story is there. Hmm, if I help, hmm, that might be enablement, so I guess I will just be disobedient and not help. We begin to think in those kind of constructs. And I believe Jesus' audience was thinking in those kind of constructs as well. And I want to be clear with you that Jesus is not criticizing wealth in this parable, and he's not elevating poverty in this parable. He's getting to something far deeper than that. But I do think a question must be leveled right here in this teaching. And the question is this. How could this rich man, with the kind of resources that he had in this fictitious story, how could he see this level of need every single day and do nothing about it? How does someone do that? How do you step over the Lazarus? How, how do you not stoop down? How do you not give him the how do you not give him the napkins from your table that could feed him? How do you not prop him up and give him water and heal his source? How do you not do that? You have more money than you know what to do with. How come you won't help him? Well, 1 John 3 might tell us. Right? Scripture interprets scripture. 1 John 3 says this, verse 16 through 18. By this we know love. That he, Jesus, laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods, get this, if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Great question. Think about it. If you have the ability to meet the need of another brother or sister, if you have the ability to meet the need of another human being, someone created in the image of God, yet you choose not to, every day at your gate you choose to step over him and not meet the need that is before you, how is the love of God in you? The answer to that is, yeah, okay, you know it, so you don't have to say it out loud, right? It's scary. It's not. I said it out loud. And then he goes on in verse 18 to say this, little children, that's a term of endearment. He's not talking to the front row of our church, okay? Let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. So here's what 1 John is saying. Listen, the love of God, when you have received it by faith, will work itself out, will prove to be true in truth and in deed, not just in speech and rhetoric. Not just in sermons, not just in gathering more intellectual knowledge in assent, 
but in the way we live our lives. This parable is an illustration of these verses. You see, wealth is not sinful, but it has the potential to blind us. I say that as a warning to us, to blind us of the need around us, but maybe more so to blind us of our actual need, our need. You see, I I believe in our lives and in our culture, individually, corporately, culturally, like I said, I believe there are Lazaruses that we step over every day without ever seeing them. This rich man did not have to go search for a poor man, for somebody who is needy. And in fact, I might even take this parable a step further, possibly to stay in line with the Good Samaritan, possibly what the rich man did was he stepped over Lazarus on his way to religious duty. He stepped over the Lazarus at his gate on his way to the soup kitchen, if you will, on his way to the synagogue, on his way to worship. And the Lord's like, listen, you have missed the person I have placed right in front of you. Culturally speaking, I think we have some different areas where this is true. Those who are incarcerated, those who are in prison. You remember, I think Scott's here, Scott Hager, taking me on my first trip to prison ministry. Me, eyes wide open, right? When the jails, the gates close behind me, so we get in there and get my assignment. It's in the infirmary. These guys who are incarcerated, who are in the infirmary, most of them which are dying. Hearing the gospel for one more time. How often do we step over that group of people, men and women? Or the elderly? The lonely? Oh, sorry, I got my Bible study. Listen, I'm all for Bible study, right? You should be going on your way to Bible study. But if in going to Bible study, you miss the person hurting right before you, what are the scriptures you're hearing? What do they bring you back to? Inflation of self or loving of brother and sister? Maybe some of you, the Lazarus you're stepping over is your own family those closest to you that you know by name, that you would say, I love them more than anyone else on the planet. But yet in the name of success, in the name of control, in the name of whatever, you're stepping over them to go do your thing, to go, yeah, but this is what's providing for them. Is it? Or are you stepping over them in their woundedness? God, give us eyes to see. Let us be a community of faith that cares for the poor, the needy, the margin those who are hurting, those who are lost in our way. And I don't mean in our way as an inconvenience. I mean who God has placed in our going way. Listen, wealth has a way of fracturing the two things that it fractures, what we say and what we actually believe and live out. Again, Jesus is not against money. He is against the result of what money can cause in our hearts, division, wrong cravings. I want to challenge you, read this week, church, 1 Timothy 6 in its entirety. In its entirety. It talks about contentment, and it talks about the things we should be content through God in in our lives, and then it also talks about the cravings that come from wealth, and see if it's not spot on to where we are culturally in our hyper-localized hyper culture here. So this is the 
part one, and I realize my time, okay? And part two is really covered from verses 22 through the end of 31. So we have this rich man, poor man, all the preconceived ideas that are probably out there with Jesus' original audience, the Pharisees and, and such. And I call this, this, first, this first section from 22 really to 24 the great surprise and the even greater reversal. So let's look at it in your text. So Jesus continuing his uh, teaching. He says, the poor man died, which is not surprising, by the way. His condition, how he was not cared for. The poor man died, and here's what's surprising, and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. What? Now, how many, any of your translations say to Abraham's bosom? Right? Yeah. Okay. What is Abraham's bosom? Well, uh, the ESV translates it to side. A bosom is just a closeness or a proximity to Abraham. Yes, that Abraham. Father Abraham, right? The father of this, of this nation. So it says that the poor man, wait a minute, the original audience might be thinking, this guy's cursed, this guy's, this guy's suffering, some consequence given to him by God. And it says that he dies, and he's the one carried by angels to Father Abraham's side, there's a closeness. So what's, what's just being portrayed here is that there's a comfort happening to this guy that is, that is otherly, right? It's just like unfathomable for a guy who on earth uh, had an uh, earthly position like this, if you will. So here's what his audience is hearing. This is, this is insane. This is incredible. He's with Father Abraham, the pinnacle of faith, the pinnacle of blessing. The, the, the poor guy's there with him. Man, what is Jesus going to do next? So if, think about this. If the poor guy's there by Abraham's side in Abraham's bosom, where's the rich guy going to be? The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And the audience would go, what? Wait, we thought that guy was blessed. I mean, look at his stuff. Look at his funeral, right? They, were, they could picture his funeral, right? Everybody, you know, in the city going around wearing purple, going, man, this guy was great. He was awesome. He had a big gate at his house, right? He did all these things. He did all these things except for care for Lazarus. He did all these things, right? What do you think Lazarus's funeral would have been like? What do you think a poor man like Lazarus' funeral? He would just been cast out, thrown out. But in this parable, Jesus is not just giving great surprises. He's talking about an even greater reversal. That their situation on earth, that death is the great reversal, that, that, that Lazarus, who was poor and needy here on earth, is comforted and elevated. That the one who on earth was feasting and had it all is now on the other side of the chasm being tormented. And he can see Lazarus. He can see Abraham. He can see that, that where he is and where Lazarus is, there is a distinct difference in those things. And notice in the parable, what does he ask? He sees that and he goes, if Lazarus would just wet his finger and give me a drop of water, this is the kind of place that this rich man finds himself in that Jesus is painting the picture of. If I could just get a drop of water from Lazarus. Now, it's interesting to me that the rich man is still almost treating Lazarus like a servant. Send Lazarus to me, please. And I don't know, maybe if that's just his desperation talking. It's one of the two. I just want to drip of water, just a drink of water to satiate this thirst that I have. Meanwhile, Lazarus is comforted, his sores healed, him whole. Now, here's why I think Jesus included the name Lazarus in this parable. The name Lazarus means 
God has helped me. What do you think people are thinking about God when he's laying at a gate on earth? Where's God? You must have done something wrong because it doesn't look like God's helping you. But you see, at some point, Lazarus, the way he could say God has helped me is because his eyes by faith saw that this earth and this life was not the end of the story. That there would be a day where God rights all wrongs where his sickness, where his boils, where, where, where those things that he is suffering through, where his hunger, it is all satisfied in and through Yahweh, in and through Jesus. That is what he is telling in this story. You see, Jesus, what he's saying in this parable is that the rich man's money could not prolong his life and could not change his destiny. That death is the great reverser in this parable and also in our life. Jesus puts it another way in Mark chapter 8, verse 36. He says, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world, yet forfeit your soul? What can he give in exchange for his soul? That's what's happening in Jesus' parable with this rich man, looking up, if you will, at Lazarus and Abraham. Verse 25, Abraham responds after him wanting that drink. goes, listen, you got what you wanted in this life, rich man. You got it all. You lived it up, if you will. You lived life to its fullest, and everybody knew all that you had. You didn't need God, and you didn't know God's heart. Question for us, church, is what do we live for? Do we live for this world, the things of this world? Because, listen, you may get them. You may get there. You may achieve that thing that you're working so hard. But let me tell you, it may cost you everything. It may cost you the thing that actually matters. You may invest everything in what the Bible says, this life being like a vapor. You may invest everything, all of you, into this little vapor and forget that there is an eternity ahead of all of us in one place or another, on one side of the chasm or the other. J.C. Ryle, um, I like his brief definition of hell. He says, hell itself is truth known too late. Hell itself is truth known too late. You feel that. Do not feel that with this rich man. He knew it. He's like, I missed it. I missed it. I got everything in the world I wanted and forfeited my soul. Give me a drop of water, please. And here's where I was hit with what I believe is the absolute point of this whole parable. Verse 29 comes on the heels of Lazarus, or excuse me, the rich man going, I have five brothers. This is verse 27, 26, 27, 28. I have five brothers, Abraham. Go to them. Go to, please go to them. I don't want them to end up here. I love them. Right, which should tell you something about the place that he's in. Please go to them. I don't want them to end up like me. I don't want them to squander everything and gain the whole world and forfeit this. I don't, I don't want that to happen. Please don't let that happen. So go to them, Please. In verse 29, and again, this is Jesus telling this story. But Abraham said to the rich man, 
They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. I think verse 29 is one of the most powerful verses on the sufficiency of the word of God in our entire Bible. Here's this man pleading that Abraham go personally, right, to his five brothers. And here, what Jesus does through Abraham is this. He goes, they have everything they need in Moses and the prophets. Another way to say it, in the word of God, in the scriptures. They have everything they need to believe in God. They have everything they need to see the Messiah correctly. They don't need me. Except the rich man knows his brother's hearts in verse 30. And he, the rich man, said, no, Father Abraham, which, by the way, I just think is an indicator of this dude's heart, right? Anytime you say no to Father Abraham, right? No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. No, I I know they have Moses. I know they have the scriptures. I know they have the prophets. I know they've heard them even. But listen, what they need is a burning bush. How often do we talk like that? If God would just give me a sign, if he'd just give me a burning bush, if he'd just do this or move this, or hey, this person, I mean, yeah, sure, I'd believe in Jesus too if I saw the resurrected Messiah. Listen to me very clearly. Signs do not save. And I'll explain why here in a little bit. But he's going, listen, Abraham, you just go to them. And the point of this parable, the whole point of this parable, with money, with resources, even with poverty, is this question of sufficiency. Is the word of God sufficient to communicate the truth of God? That is what Abraham is saying through Jesus in this passage. Listen, the word of God is sufficient to disclose and to show every human heart what it longs for, the eternity that is written on it, the word of God is sufficient. Listen, you believe what's sufficient is having a big enough 401k. You believe what is sufficient to control your life is you actually being in charge of it. You believe what is sufficient is that if you just had that one more career move, if you just had 10 more years here, then you could stack up this amount of money, and then, and then that's what's sufficient. Then I can do ministry. Then I could stop at Lazarus. Could you? How do you know you're promised those 10 more years? Or one more day. You might be. But who's in charge of that? Are you sufficient in of yourself? And I hope all of us in here, I think this parable confronts us and goes, you're insufficient. I'm insufficient. I can't save myself. There's nothing, there's nothing I have in my life that can save me. It's not my wife. It's not my family. It's not my good career. It's not my uh, bank account. Nothing is sufficient in this life to save me. What is the only sufficiency? That which the word of God points to. What is our sufficiency? Jesus Christ alone. How do we know that? From Genesis to Revelation, God has been communicating that generation after generation after generation. And so let me tell you the wrestle or the question for every generation since the beginning of the time is this. Is God's word sufficient? Is it fully sufficient? Is it able to fulfill all that which it promises? Is it fully sufficient in that all it says is true? Is it true, verse 13, that we cannot serve two masters? 
Because most of us live as if we can. Is scripture true? And where Romans 1 says that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for all mankind. I love the way Westminster Confession of Faith speaks about Scripture. And I want you to hear this. Do you believe this? It says the whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory, meaning the Bible. It discloses God's glory, man's salvation, faith, and life is either expressly set down in Scripture or by good and necessary consequence may be deduced from scripture unto which nothing at any time is to be added whether by new revelations of the spirit or traditions of men do you believe that that the word of god is true for god's glory salvation faith how we live our witness all of that is contained in the beauty of what god has given us in his word And so let me tell you, just as clear as I can, those who reject the gospel through the word of God will not be convinced even if they are confronted by someone who has risen from the dead. You say, Kyle, how do you know that? Well, the one who did rise from the dead just told us. Just told us in this parable. And so it's on his authority that we say that. You see, Jesus knew those who would deny him before his resurrection, particularly the Pharisees who are the primary audience of this, would also be the ones who denied him after his resurrection. Why? Why? Did, why? Because they didn't believe what was written in the word of God. And the prophets, nor did they believe the word of God standing right before them. And so this morning, I want to ask you a question of eternal significance. Will you believe the gospel that has been preached to you through the word of God? That the only way of salvation is through faith and trust in Jesus Christ. That the only way to have a right relationship with God is to confess your insufficiency and his perfect sufficiency to save. You see, this message isn't about money. It's not about poverty. It's not about heaven or hell. It's a message about your heart. It's a message screaming that our hearts cannot hold two masters. That the throne of our hearts will not be shared by God with anything else. And so hear me, McKinney, Texas, don't be fooled by riches. Don't be lulled to sleep by wealth. Don't be distracted if you find yourself not in that boat. Don't be distracted, I think the word of God would say as well, by poverty. Jesus' call to believe is for the wealthy and for the poor alike. His message is the same. Come to me, all who are weary. Come to me, and I will give you capital R rest. Come to me. But in your coming to me, you renounce all the other masters. Praise God that the master I'm pleading my own heart to come to is the one who gave up all riches in heaven. Praise God that master 
didn't step over us in our time of need, but who met us right where we were, who picked us up by laying down his life for us. The scripture tells us that he, be, he who knew no sin, he who never had a bad day, a, a wrong motive, a, 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 an issue in his life that resulted in sin, he didn't have one of those things. He became sin. He who knew no sin became sin for us so that we in exchange could have his perfect record in life. And just like we started this sermon, look at you and he would go, I love you. You're loved. And so we're going to go into a time of communion as we do every week. And this time, if you're new with us, is a time for reflection and partaking of communion. But these tables, listen to me. These tables are tables of invitation. They're inviting you to something. And that something is a relationship with the God of the universe in and through Jesus Christ. And many of you, you have trusted in Christ. And so you're going to take these elements. This is going to be a moment of reflection going, Holy Spirit, what are those other things in my life? What are those other masters that I find just, just their claws in my heart? Lord, I, they, you are my master. You're the one I love. Holy Spirit, help me. God, is it riches? Is it our affluence that's blinding us? Is it our desire for those things? I don't know. I'm going to let the Holy Spirit do his work in your heart as he is in mine. But I think it comes back to this question of sufficiency. Is Jesus enough? Is he enough for you? Is he enough for our church? So we're about to take and hold elements and say, yes, he is. He's all I want and he's all I need. And I love that we get to make that confession every week. But church, let's not do this flippantly or lightly. That when you get up and our hosts lead us, that you're making a walk going, Jesus, you are all I need. That when you come up to these tables and you grab the juice and you grab the bread, you're going, you're all I need. As you come back to your seat, you're going to begin to pray and process. My prayer in the first service, in my own heart, my own time reflecting, was the prayer that comes from the father with the sick child. And his prayer is this, help me in my unbelief. Jesus, I believe, but help me in my unbelief. Help me in those spaces and places that I'm not believing you're sufficient. Let me pray for us. Holy Spirit, lead this time as you always do. Shepherd our hearts to the right place and space. Jesus, you are sufficient. You are more than we need. Forgive us for taking the invitation lightly and not seriously. Lord, for living for the vapor of this life and not the eternity that you're calling us to. So lead us, Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Host.